Will you please turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 Thessalonians 5. And be looking at a passage there, so you'll need a Bible for that. These guys have some. So as they make their way back, get their attention if you want one. And those are marked at 1 Thessalonians 5 for your convenience. And you can keep that Bible as well. It's our gift to you. We want everybody to have a Bible. We've all heard the advice, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Now, for many situations, that's wise counsel, because we can sometimes get carried away with finding things to tweak and problems to fix that are mostly of our imagination. So leave well enough alone is often a good way to go. But that advice, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, or leave well enough alone, is not helpful in situations in which we know if it's left alone, even before it's broke, you know at some point it's going to fail. For example, the best time to change the oil in your car is before, not after, your engine has problems. Because sometimes waiting until it's broke will leave you broke. And that's why most often, rather than if it ain't broke, don't fix it, the best advice comes from Ben Franklin in Poor Richard's Almanac. You've all heard an ounce of prevention is of greater worth than a pound of cure. And that is saying that smaller measures taken now will prevent larger and more costly issues for us in the future. But how do you know when to do one versus the other? How do you know when to leave well enough alone or to take action now to prevent larger issues in the future? Here, here's one final word of sage advice that most of us have heard. Experience is the best teacher. And to that, I would add experience is the best teacher, especially when it's somebody else's experience. So in answer to the question, how do I know when I should take action to prevent a problem in the future? It's very wise to look at the experience of others and the problems that they encountered, which with some preventative steps ahead of time could have been avoided. And did you know that the Bible does this for us? It gives us other people's experience so that we can learn from it and take action ahead of time to avoid what happened to them. Last week, we began looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we learned that the church to whom this letter was written is actually called a model church in chapter 1 and verse 7. And then in chapter 4 and verse 1 and also verses 9 and 10 of that chapter, we're told this, verse 1 of chapter 4, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. And then verse 9, now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you. In fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia, yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, now note again this phrase, do this more and more. So the occasion that prompted the writing of this letter to this church was not so much all the problems they had but rather the fact that experience tells us that if prevention is not pursued, then problems will occur in the future. Now, the letters in your New Testament are sometimes referred to as 
occasional documents. That is, their writing was occasioned because of something going on in the church. And often what's going on is a problem or problems that need to be corrected. First Corinthians is an example of that. As you read through the 16 chapters of that letter to the church at Corinth, you find that Paul, who wrote it, is addressing a whole assortment of problems that they had. Galatians is another example. It's a letter that's addressing a very important issue, a problem that the churches in Galatia had with regard to their view of justification, salvation. So 1 Corinthians and Galatians are examples of this correcting problems that occasioned the letter. But for 1 Thessalonians, it was written for the most part to prevent problems in the future. Now, as we as Community Bible Church then begin 2016, I thought it wise for our church, which I believe is a model church in many ways. But I thought it wise for us to take some time to remind ourselves of those things that will serve us well and help us avoid problems if we take preventative measures. The number one metaphor used in the New Testament to describe the church is that of a family. The church is called Christ's body, Christ's bride, and other things, but the most often used description is a family, God's household. In fact, the letters of the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul, who also wrote 1 Thessalonians, in those letters he uses the phrase brothers and sisters at least 60 times. And in this letter alone, only five chapters, He uses it 27 times. That's why I've called then this series looking at the church and reminding us about what the church is to be. I've called it life in the father's house. Because life in the church is life in God's household. It's life among God's family. And we all know how important and yet fragile family relationships are. And so our passage today addresses three categories of relationships within the family of God, God's household, the church. It addresses pastors to people and their responsibilities toward God's people. And it addresses God's people and their responsibilities to pastors. And then a third category is people to people, all of us to one another. And it does that in verses 12 through 15, verse 12 of chapter 5. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. A challenging passage indeed for us to fulfill. So let's ask God to help us as we look at what he tells us about life in the Father's house. Father, we thank you that we can come to you and come to you as our Father. And we can do so because we have been born into your family, born again. We've been adopted into your family with the full rights of children of God. And you treat us as your sons and daughters. You expect us to behave 
and uphold the family name in our interactions with one another in your household and then in our interactions with the world that you have made. Father, these are challenging things for us because we are weak, because we are sinful, because we are forgetful. And so, Lord, help us today and in the coming weeks as we review what you tell us about life in your house to have open hearts, attentive minds, and a willingness to conform ourselves to the standard that you lay out in your word. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, last week we saw in verses 12 and 13 the reciprocal ministry of pastors and people. Today we're going to focus on that third category of people to people, all of us in the congregation to one another as members of God's family. And the transition to that third category is made at the end of verse 13. Live in peace with each other. Now, in the Greek language in which your New Testament was first written, this command is written in such a way that it's not telling them to start being at peace. It's not saying you're currently at war and there are hostilities among you, so stop that and be at peace. But rather, it's telling them to continue what they're already doing. One commentator, D. Edmund Hebert, says, they're not urged to make peace, but rather to maintain it. It is a compliment to them, implying that their peaceful relations had not been broken. But because they well could be broken, remember, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, isn't always the, the best advice. It's not broken here, and nevertheless, it's, it's being addressed. Because those relationships could well be broken, it's best not to wait until it breaks, but to work on it before it does. And we're told that very thing in other passages, one that I referenced for you last week in Ephesians chapter 4. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Now notice, keep, you already have it, but it requires effort to keep it. Why does it require effort to keep it? Because we're sinful folks and we can mess it up. And I gave you many examples last week of how in churches, both in history, in our own day, the landscape is strewn with relationships in churches that have been broken. Now, in order for that peace to be maintained, it requires that the congregation deal with one another where we are and as we move each other to where we need to go. That is, none of us is where we need to be. None of us is where we need to be. And we all have our own particular struggles for which we need one another's mutual aid and one another's understanding on the journey that we all share. I pointed out last week that verse 14 places the responsibility for this, this mutual care for one another, dealing with one another where we are to aid one another in getting where we need to go. And this responsibility is placed on all of us because it's addressed in verse 14 to brothers and sisters. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, all of you, warn those that are idle, and so on. In verse 14, we're given instruction on how to deal with people in different conditions, and all of us are told to participate. And as I said last week, you might wonder how it is you can do that. How can you participate in the life of another brother or sister and help them in the various conditions that we're going to look at from verse 14? After all, we're not professional counselors. But I remind you that the Bible tells us that if we know the Word of God, 
If we love our brothers and sisters, then we can and we must offer instruction and counsel to one another. Romans 15 says this, I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and competent to to instruct, that is, a word translated, sometimes counsel, warn, admonish. You're competent, you are able, you have the ability to do this if you know the Word of God and if you love one another. The Bible tells us elsewhere, Colossians chapter 3, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly so that you know the Word of God, you're practicing the Word of God, and then teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. There's that same word again. That's translated instruct in Romans 15. Now, the first part of the outline that's inserted in your program, if you don't have that out yet, I encourage you to take a look, pull that out. Because the first part of it, you'll notice, is grayed out because we covered that last week. And we saw then that people must minister to one another or that pastors and people must minister to one another. And now we're going to see that God's people must minister to one another. In verses 14 and 15. Now in verse 14 we're given four categories of people that are always in the church and to whom we need to minister differently depending on their particular need. Each condition requires a different type of care. So I say in your outline there is the ministry that we are to have, all of us are to have, to specific people. And who are those specific people? The first category is this. To the disobedient, the disobedient. How are we to handle the disobedient in our midst? We are to warn them. To the disobedient, we address that with warning. So first we're told in verse 14, and we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Now each of the three groups that are in this uh, list that I've given you, are already have already been alluded to earlier in this letter of 1 Thessalonians. Here we are in chapter 5, the last chapter of the letter. But prior to that, these three groups have already been alluded to. This first group is the idle and the disruptive. I've called them disobedient. I'll tell you why I named it that in, in just a bit. But they're referred to back in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12 where it says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Now, again, just stay with me for a little bit. I'll show you how those two verses refer to the idle and the disruptive in just a bit. But prior to naming them in these categories in chapter 5, they've already been addressed in chapter 4. And likewise, there's the second category that I have named for you in the outline, the disheartened. And they're referred to in chapter 4 as well, verses 14 to 17. And there we read about those who are anxious about departed loved ones, or they are also referred to in chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. They're anxious, worried about their own salvation. And then the weak are referred to as well, prior to being named as this third category in chapter 5 and verse 14. The weak are those who are spiritually weak. 
And they suffer from temptation, the temptation to lapse back into the immorality out of which Christ has called them. They're referred to in chapter 4, verses 2 through 8. Chapter 4, verses 2 through 8. So why do I have as this first category the idle and disruptive? Why do I call them disobedient? Well, it's because the passage literally says they're unruly or disorderly. It's a word that means to be out of line or out of step because they're not following orders, they're not keeping rules. And in the church at Thessalonica, there was a particular group that was disorderly, a particular group that was not following the rules. It was the people who were idle. These were loafers who failed to carry out their duty to support themselves and their families. And as a result, they were a burden on the church. Now, can you think of a reason why you might have a group of people in the church who were like that? Beyond just they're lazy. Okay, there's that. (laughs) The other thing is that many in the first century church believed that Jesus was coming back right away. And so I'm just waiting, biding my time until Jesus comes back. But Paul gave instruction on a number of occasions To say, work with your hands, as we saw back in in chapter 4. And by the time Paul wrote his second letter to this church, this is called 1 Thessalonians, implying there's at least a second, and indeed in your Bible, there's a second Thessalonians. And by the time he wrote the second letter to the church, he had to say this. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, keep away from every brother... Now, notice the phrase, who is idle and disruptive. Same group of people. We're told to to warn the idle and disruptive back in 1 Thessalonians. And now here they're being addressed again, but now it's keep away from every brother who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching that you receive from us. You see, unruly. You see, disorderly, not following the orders, not following the rules. And then it goes on to say, for even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Yikes. Now, that's just down. It just seems downright unchristian, doesn't it? I had a seminary professor, Dr. McCune our theology professor, he used to say, be careful that you don't become more Christian than Christ or more pious than Paul. You know, there's a a brand of Christianity out there that thinks that Christianity is just all nice. But if you're actually going to deal with issues, then you have to deal with those issues realistically. And the Bible gives us realistic approaches to the problems that people have. And if people are regularly disorderly and unruly, at some point then, you have to up the ante, as it were. Showing them the error of their way by, according to this passage in 2 Thessalonians 3, keeping away from? And many of you would think, because we've adopted the American version of Christianity rather than the Bible version, that to ever do such a thing would be unchristian at its core. And yet Paul requires it, we're going to see that Jesus requires it. When folks are claiming his name, but continually disobedient to what he says. 
So what are we to do with people who, this is addressing people who are in open sin. And there is patience at first. The first letter, it's warn them. But by the time he writes the second letter, it's keep away from because they're continuing to do this. They've been warned. And they need to see the error of their way and then hopefully and prayerfully to be restored. So what do we do? We, we warn them, warn those, verse 14 says, who are idle and disruptive. And in the case of the church at Thessalonica, that idleness was about not working. That disorderliness, that unruliness, that not following the rules was failure to follow Paul's order to work with your own hands. Live quiet and peaceful lives so that you'll have respect from those that are outside and not be a burden to those that are inside the church. He had given that. They're not doing it. But there are any number of things in the church for which someone may be openly and regularly disobedient, are there not? That God has told us to do in his word. And what are we to do? This is that first category of the disobedient. And we are to to warn them. Now, I want you to notice something. Those of you that might struggle with this being more Christian than Christ, more pious than Paul. You know, this just doesn't fit in with my version of Christianity. To do this. Well, I want you to notice something. That in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, that I read earlier, where this group of people is referenced. This group of disobedient people who are idle. Just before that are the verses that I read yet earlier, in verses 9 and 10, where they are told about and commended for their love for one another, and then told to do this, have this love for one another and all of God's people more and more. But then it goes on to instruct those who are disobedient and idle. And then the very next chapter says to warn them. So listen, friends, it's not a lack of love to warn someone about their disobedience. Warning, if done right and with the right attitude in the right circumstances, is in fact a matter of love. This word for warning in chapter 5 and verse 14 is the same word that we saw and I put on the screen for you a bit ago in Romans 15 and verse 14 that was translated there, instruct. And then Colossians 3 and verse 16 that was translated, admonish. Same Greek word translated in all of those instances as instruct or warn, sometimes counsel. It's the Greek word, nutheteo, nutheteo. Now, in putting all of the passages together in which this word nutheteo is used, one arrives at a biblical definition of what it means to admonish, to counsel, to warn, to instruct. So here's a working definition of that. It's loving confrontation with the truth for the purpose of change. Loving confrontation with the truth For the purpose of change. The Bible is telling us in numerous passages. That if we really love one another. And we see a brother or sister. Who is going astray. And regularly disobeying God's commands. That because we love them. We will lovingly confront. It's not a hostile confrontation. But a loving confrontation. And a loving confrontation not with my opinion. Not with my two cents, but with the truth. And for the end, that we will be conformed to the image of Jesus, that we will change. 
Loving confrontation with the truth for the purpose of change. When we see a brother or sister sin, it's our obligation for their sake and for Christ's sake to go to them and to call them to repentance. Did you know that? Jesus said as much. In Matthew 18, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. He goes on to say what you do if they don't listen to you. (laughs) But just for now, that's the obligation that we have. You see a brother or sister in sin, go, point out their fault. Or elsewhere, the Bible says, Galatians chapter 6, brothers and sisters. If someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Now, I just want to point out, notice the phrase in the middle of that verse, you who live by the Spirit. This is addressed to brothers and sisters. This is potentially all of us can and are called to be engaged in this ministry to one another, as we've already seen. But if you're going to go to somebody, you need to be sure that you're striving and you are evidencing that you are living by the Spirit. Now, how do I know if I'm living by the Spirit? Well, notice the reference there. It's Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. And when your Bible was originally written, it didn't have chapters and verses. Those are just there added later so we can find stuff. So I can get up and say, turn to 1 Thessalonians 5, and you know where that is. But originally, it was just all one letter. No chapters, no verses. Galatians is the same way. And at the end of chapter 5 in Galatians, many of you remember what's in chapter 5. That... The deeds, the works, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious, beginning in verse 19. And then it lists a number of sinful acts. But then it talks about in verses 22 and 23, famously, but the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace. It admonishes us to be people then who display the Spirit, display these qualities of the Spirit. And then you come into chapter 6 Those who live by the Spirit are people who should go and do this. So how do I know if I'm such a person? Are you displaying, and is it obvious, that you're displaying the spiritual qualities of love, joy, peace, gentleness, self-control, the nine fruits of the fruit of the evidences of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23? And as I've said, this is the loving thing for us to do. You all have heard the phrase, in fact, the Bible uses it in a few places. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. Well, that phrase is partially used in another passage in James chapter 5. Here's what it says. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. But instead of love, it says this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins and love, when it's put into action, often involves turning a sinner from the error of their way. We can quote love covers over a multitude of sins, which means for many of us, just put it under the rug. Don't worry about it. James says, no, Help your brother or sister by warning them and turning him or her from the error of their way. How much better would it be, friends, 
in our churches if we cared enough for each other to lovingly confront each other with the truth. I can tell you this, it would be much better for me personally. (laughs) Because you know what happens when we don't do that. Well, okay, then the, the problem becomes worse. The problem becomes acute. And then it gets kicked upstairs, as it were. And then the leaders deal with it. And by the time we deal with it, the person very often is recalcitrant. And we have to confront then way down the road where another brother or sisters or many who may have known what was happening could have prevented that becoming what it did. So to the disobedient, which will always be in our churches, because we love one another, because we're in the Father's house, we warn. There's another category, to the fearful. We provide encouragement, to the fearful encouragement. Encouragement. Verse 14 says, encourage the disheartened. Now I've called the disheartened the fearful because that word disheartened is literally this, short of soul. It's someone who's lost heart, and so the person is fearful of what might happen. They're afraid to step out and try something new that has any potential for failure. They only want what is safe and risk-free. For some, our motto is nothing ventured and nothing gained. For this person, it's nothing ventured, nothing lost. If you make a proposal, they're going to give you ten reasons why it can't be done. How many of you are old enough to remember Gulliver's Travels cartoon? And there was a character on there named Glum. And Glum was famous for always saying, we're doomed. We'll never make it. That's this person. Now, what's a a fearful, timid, worrisome person's problem? For whatever reason, and maybe for a host of reasons... Things that have gone on in their life, maybe just their natural disposition. They are someone who fails to trust a sovereign God. And they need encouragement. A word that literally means to come alongside. It pictures putting your arm around the person. And not assuring them that everything that they want to happen will happen. But that ultimately in the end it will be okay. Because God is on the throne and in control. And so the disobedient we warn, the fearful we encourage, the disheartened we encourage. Then thirdly in verse 14, for the feeble we offer support, support. Verse 14 says, help the weak. This is primarily concerned with those that are weak in faith. These have not yet learned to lean on the Lord as much as they should for their spiritual needs. And until they do, they need strong support from other believers. Let me just say here quickly, they need strong support from other believers. But how can they get that support from other believers if other believers don't endeavor to get to know them? So let me just say to you, dear friend, member of the household of God and the family of God to whom these directives are given. That if we are to fulfill these things, it assumes that we know each other. It assumes that we endeavor to assemble But not just assemble, but to actually relate with one another. That's why we offer more venues. Do you all know we offer more venues than just like this? Because here, this is how you'll get to know people in this setting right now. You're getting to know the back of somebody's head. 
That's it. And for many of us, that's as far as it goes. I show up at church. I get to know the back of your head. I, by the way, from my vantage point, I get to know the tops of a lot of your heads when you're when you sleep. <laughs> so I know when you're nodding off. But that's as far as it goes for many of us. That's why we offer other venues than this one. We're going to dismiss in just a little bit. We're going to have a time that we intentionally put in every Sunday morning, and that is a refreshment time. But that refreshment time is a relationship time. For you to go and talk and get to know people that you don't already know. I challenge you to do that. Tonight, we're going to reconvene for our home groups, our community groups. If you really want to get to know people in a better way than you can in cafe community or in here, you need to be a part of a community group. If you want to know what those are about and sign up for one, do that at the Information Center. We offer a number of venues and ways for you to do that. Help support the weak. As I say, it's primarily concerned with those who are weak in faith, but it can also include those who are weak or feeble physically or materially. Whether our brother or sister is deficient in faith, health, or food, our responsibility is to support, to help. And then finally, there's a fourth category. Or it may be just a general admonition that with all of these groups and any others that could be added, to be patient with everyone. Be patient with everyone. So we warn the disobedient, we encourage the fearful, we help or support the weak, and to the wearisome, we're long-suffering. Long-suffering. To the wearisome, we're long-suffering. This would be a, a person, the wearisome. <laughs> this would be a person who constantly has issues. They fall down again and again, and they need help over and over. Or as indicated in the NIV, it's a general statement, for, perhaps, for how we're to handle all sorts of people, the idle, the disheartened, the weak. All of them require that we be patient. The word is sometimes translated long-suffering. That's why I have that in your outline. It's used in the Bible as the first characteristic of love, that love is patient. I read years ago in a book that sometimes in a church there are people who are what are called EGRs, extra grace required. And as you think about that, people for whom extra grace is required, and you're thinking, I don't know anybody like that, then it's probably you. But I ask you, friends, who is it in our congregation for whom you have no patience? Now, I'm not asking for anybody to talk. I'm not asking for anybody to confess, raise a hand. I'm asking for you and for me to ask ourselves who you're thinking about right now that you say, you know what? Why doesn't that person get his or her act together? I'm done with them. And then, having asked and answered that question yourself, ourselves, ask yourself this, how patient is our God with us? And is Community Bible Church going to be the household of God? If we expect people to come in here and know what they're to do and know how to act the part, and if they don't, we're going to write them off? And I fear that. I've seen that, as a matter of fact. I've seen that. And let me just say to you, brothers and sisters, we don't roll that way here. 
The motto of Community Bible Church has been for 14 years since we started, we are the family of God. That's how it starts, the family of God, built on the word of God to the glory of God. And did you all know you don't choose your family members? You don't choose your biological family members and you don't choose your spiritual family members. And they don't have to come in here all dressed up and ready to go the way you want them to be. So that's the ministry to specific people. And then lastly, in your outline, there's the ministry to people in general. In verse 15, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Here's what that verse is telling us. Do not respond in kind. Do not respond in kind. Do not respond to what someone does to you. And it's the way the verse is worded. It's people inside and outside the church, even if persecuted, even if hassled at work because you're a Christian. Do not respond in kind. But it's not enough for Christians to simply refrain from doing something. We actually actively have to do good. So the Bible doesn't tell us just refrain from doing wrong. We have to actively do good. Remember, Jesus gave us what's the so-called golden rule. Remember, it's do to others what you would have them do to you. And did you know that hundreds of years before Jesus said that, a Chinese philosopher named Confucius gave what's sometimes called the silver rule. Do not do to others what you would not want them to do to you. And we say, well, Jesus ripped off Confucius. Well, no, those, those, those are actually quite different. Because with Confucius dictum, you, you could actually just be passive your entire life and fulfill it. Do not do to others what you would not want them to do. But Jesus says positively, you have to do to others. Christian love requires that we do, not just that we refrain. To avoid improper actions means that we have to maintain proper thoughts. And so think about others and what they've done to you, but think about them in the right way. What have I done that deserves God's judgment? Yikes. (laughs) And so as I want to give judgment to them, I think about the things that God could judge me for. Or how can I see this person by putting myself in his or her shoes? I would encourage you to do this in order for us to not respond in kind and to positively do good to others, as we're going to see in a moment. But to positively do that, I'm going to have to, in a sense, make excuses for others. Make excuses for what they do. Try to find reasons for why this person is where they are and as bitter, perhaps, as they are. So do not respond in kind, but in your outline we say respond in kindness. Respond in kindness. Verse 15 tells us make sure you don't pay. No one pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good. Some translations say to be kind to one another. It's literally to pursue what is good. It's not kind the way we use it as polite, pleasant, but rather it involves action. Return good for the wrong that has been done to you. Romans chapter 12 says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that's precisely the way kindness is used of God's relationship to us in Scripture. Luke chapter 6, God is 
kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. So be merciful just as your father is merciful. Titus chapter 3. When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. You see, this kindness is action. He's doing something. And that's why if we love, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, has its its very first characteristic. Love is patient and then love is kind. Verse 15 says we're to strive to do this. You know why it says to strive to do it? Some translations say try to do it. (laughs) You know why? Because it doesn't come naturally. And it has to be intentionally pursued. We have to strive to return good for the evil that others do to us, both inside and outside the church. But a proper understanding of the gospel leads us to these kinds of relationships. We say in your take-home truth that every believer has the privilege of being a minister. Every believer has the privilege of being a minister. That word minister means a servant. It's the way it's used in your New Testament. And in this context, it is serving. We have the privilege of serving one another. May God, by his grace, help this church to be one in which those are the kinds of relationships we pursue. And as a result of that, may Community Bible Church be a church where it is evident, as Jesus said in John 13, that we are different. Because, John 13, 35, by this will all men know that you are my disciples. Do you remember how? If you love one another. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for both your instruction and the example of the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the instruction that is poignant, that deals with us precisely where we are because it dealt with those to whom the Bible was first written precisely where they were. People have not changed. Your standards have not changed. And therefore, the instructions and examples that we are given in your word are always relevant for us. Thank you, Lord, for that instruction. We thank you for the example that we have in your kindness to us, especially seen in God coming to earth to do for us what we couldn't do. Lord, help us then as people who claim to be followers of Christ, who claim to embrace the good news of the gospel, to be people then who live that out in the way we relate to each other. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would move upon our hearts to impress these truths upon us so that we will practice them as soon as we are done in this sacred hour. That we will practice them in our relationships during Cafe Community. Getting to know one another by joining venues that we, that we have not been a part of so that we can get to know a larger part of your family. To know how we can love them and help them. And help us, Lord, this week to think about how we interact with those that you bring in our circle of influence. And apply these principles of the gospel to those relationships as well. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.